You can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John as we return to our studies in this fourth Gospel. It's been a few weeks. We're starting a new section in John's Gospel. Remember, a basic overview or outline of the book is a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, where the Apostle gives us a sort of behind-the-scenes view of the Word, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And he tells us, or he begins, with a discussion of theology proper, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we have what's called the Book of the Signs, or the public ministry of Jesus, which begins in chapter 1 at verse 19 and continues to chapter 12 and verse 50. And here we come thirdly to what has been called the Book of the Passion. And basically what we have here to the end of chapter 20 is Christ's preparation for and ultimately his death and resurrection. And so it's a very instructive portion of John's gospel. The book then ends with an epilogue in chapter 21. So our focus this morning will be on chapter 13, just the first three verses, because I think in the th first three verses what we find is an introduction to the rest of what we find in chapters 13 to 16. So I just want to read from verse 1. We'll read to verse 17, and then I'll pray. So John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know this, know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you so very much for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the, the great privilege that is ours to gather together with the people of God on the day of God in the house of God. And we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that you would increase our love for you and our love for one another. Bless our fellowship. The fellowship of the saints is so wonderful to be able to spend time with the people of God and to get that refreshment and that encouragement. 
as well, God. We pray for the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit as we consider the scripture now. We pray that we would bask in and see and marvel in the, the glory of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you for that love that he displays. We thank you for that, that gospel of our salvation, namely his life, death, and resurrection. And we pray that all over the earth today, this gospel would be proclaimed, that it would run swiftly, that it would be glorified, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And God, may it be the case that from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, sinners would come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to chapters 13 to 16, we have what's been historically called the Upper Room Discourse. Some today call it the farewell discourse. I don't want to argue about which is preferable, but we'll proceed under the auspices of the upper room discourse. And I think there's two reasons why Jesus does what he does in this particular discourse. In the first place, he continues to teach and instruct his disciples concerning not only himself, but the Father and the Holy Spirit. In other words, Trinitarian theology looms large in the instruction of our Lord in this upper room. And that shouldn't surprise us. Again, the prologue in John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the constant emphasis by our Lord in his teaching ministry on the fact that he was sent by the Father that he was sent by God, that he came on a particular mission to save his people from their sins. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we come to the upper room, Jesus is giving his disciples more instruction concerning the triune God. But I suspect also he continues to prepare the apostles for the ministry they will undertake after his death, resurrection, and ascension to his father's right hand. In other words, these men are going to be the men that we see in the book of Acts that basically turn the world upside down. And so Christ is preparing them. Christ is fitting them. Christ is giving them information to assist them in that task. And it won't be the case that they'll go out and everybody will pre uh, be saved under their preaching and everything's just going to be wonderful. It's going to usher in a latter-day glory right there in Judea. No, there would be converts. There would be churches planted, but there would be great opposition. There would be great persecution. There would be great enmity, the sort of enmity that the people had toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They then spend on the church and the apostles. So Christ wants to instruct them concerning these things for their fittedness for gospel ministry. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson made this observation. He says, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, which they are, they don't know it here at this particular point, but that's exactly what's going to happen. He says, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. Huh, you think that's the kind of stuff we need in the midst of chaos, in the midst of flux, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution? Absolutely, positively. A great big dose of the knowledge of God goes a long way to steadying the people of God. And that seems to be one of our Lord's tactics with reference to these men. 
Ferguson concludes, if anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. In other words, a knowledge of who God is empowers and enables the apostles in the first century and the church in the 21st century to engage in exploits for the Most High. If we don't know our God, we don't understand God, we don't have an appreciation for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what is it that we're about? What is our function in this world? Certainly we're to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation, but we're supposed to hold forth the word. We're supposed to be a people of the book. We're supposed to be a people of understanding. We're supposed to be a people marked by 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and in the what? In the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not to be conformed to this present evil age, but rather we're to be transformed by what? by the renewing of our minds. In other words, brethren, we need doctrine. And that's precisely what Christ gives to these disciples in the upper room to prepare them for the eventuality of church planting, disciple making, and opposition from both unbelieving Israel and then the civil state in the Roman Empire. So let us now look specifically at verses one to three. As I said, I think it functions as an introduction to the entirety of the discourse. The discourse goes from 13 to 16. It does function to introduce this foot washing episode. God willing, we'll look at that next Sunday morning. But I think verses one to three basically modify control or are over the entirety of this upper room discourse. So there are three things to consider here. First, the arrival of the hour in verse one. Second, the opposition of the devil in verse two. And then thirdly, the resolution of Jesus in verse three, or we might say his commitment, his resolve his willingness to go to the very end on behalf of his people. But note the arrival of the hour. Verse one tells us, now before the uh, feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. So the setting of the context, his, uh, the setting of the context historically is the feast of Passover. We have noted this in our studies in John's gospel. It's basically as if John's gospel is structured around the Passover. You've got several mentioned, and here specifically, we see the events connected to Passover that, uh, that are affecting our Lord Jesus Christ. So his death at the cross coincides with what you find in Exodus chapter 12. Remember that Passover feast where God tells the children of Israel that you need to take a, a, an animal out of your flock, you need to kill it, and you need to take some of that blood, and you need to splash it above the doorposts on your house. And when you do that, by faith, understand that the angel of God most high will pass over. And it's not based on the faith of the particular individual. It is rather based on the blood that is sprinkled on the doorpost. It's not the strength of the Israelites' faith, but it's the power of the blood of the lamb. And so what we find in the book of John is a new exodus, not out of Egyptian bondage, but out of the slave market of sin. We find the true Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ our Lord, John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we see in connection to all of this, the celebration of the Passover, which yields itself to the, to the institution of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus Christ is the antitype. The Old Testament point, points forward and promises one to come, and he is the fulfillment. As Paul tells us, he is the yea and amen of all of God's promises. 
So the particular historical context is the Feast of Passover, but then notice specifically the theological context. Now, before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, this hour has been referred to in several places in John's Gospel, most closely here in chapter 12. You can turn back, chapter 12, specifically at verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then dropping down into verse 27, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So this hour has sort of been in the backdrop of John's gospel all throughout. But now the hour has come. And the hour is not left up for grabs in terms of what does it mean? It's associated with his glorification. It's associated with his soul sorrows there in 12, 23, and 27. And it's associated specifically here in 13, 1 with his departure from this world back to the Father. So in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We see that Jesus came to his own, according to John 1, 9 and 10, but his own received him not. So now the hour has come that he returns to the Father. So what does that mean? It means it's through the death on the cross and resurrection from the dead that he ascends back on high to lead captivity captive and to give gifts to men. So Christ understands this, Christ knows this, and Christ uses or seizes the opportunity to prepare his disciples. So the identification of the hour and then the description of the hour, it's right there. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that, this is explanatory, that he should depart from this world to the Father. This is what John has been alluding to in this mention of the hour up until this particular point. It's arrived, it's associated with his glory, it's associated with soul trouble according to his humanity, and it's ultimately associated with those events of his death and resurrection. The hour had come. And then notice this last statement in verse one. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is why I suggest that what we find here in verses 1 to 3 basically control the entirety of, of chapters 13 to 16. In other words, why is he teaching his disciples? Yes, he wants effective ministry. He wants effective disciple making. He wants effective church planting. He wants effective resistance to tyranny. He wants effective Christianity in that first century. All that's true. But why does he instruct them in chapters 13 to 16? It's because he loves them. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loves them to the end. So I would suggest that the love that Christ has is the motivating factor to the words that he speaks. In other words, he's not chastening them, he's not chiding them, he's not reproving them, he's not rebuking them. He's using truth calculated to promote health in them, to promote earnestness in them, to promote mighty exploits for the glory of God by them, but he is doing it because he loves them. In fact, if you look back throughout redemptive history, we call it the 11th hour, when a man comes to die. What does he do? What would you do in your 11th hour? If you knew that today you were going to die, what would you do? Well, I've, I've always wanted to climb Mount Shem, so I'm going to schedule that in at 1 p.m. I'd like to have a good meal at 5 p.m., and then, and then I'll breathe my last. 
Well, when you look at the 11th hour of men in scripture, you know what they often do? They gather their family about them. They gather them round about. And what do they do? In the context of love for their family, they instruct them. They encourage them. They teach them. They try to pass on nuggets of wisdom to them. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I would argue, is his 11th hour gathering together the people of God. And what is large in the mind and heart of the apostle? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? Because the time will come when they'll no longer endure sound doctrine. But they'll gather up teachers that'll scratch their itching ears. The other reason he gives us for my departure is at hand. He knows that he has fought the good fight. He has uh, uh, finished the faith and he uh, finished the race and he has kept the faith. This is what was important to Paul was to pass on the baton of the necessity of gospel preaching to advance the kingdom of God on earth throughout this age. And when we come to Jesus, it's, it's love that brings him to this place where he encourages his people and several things that he does. He exhorts them that they humbly serve others. I'm gonna argue next week that foot washing is not to be a sacrament in the church. I don't think he means that we need to always wash each other's feet or have a day of the year where we wash each other's feet. I think the idea is humble service. Be willing to wash the feet of a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ. In other words, give yourselves to others. Service, that's the emphasis born out of his love for them. The exhortation that they love one another. In other words, he doesn't just say, don't do what I, or he says, do basically what I've done. I love you, I've loved you to the end. Go ahead and love one another. He does that in 13, 34, and 35. The exhortation that they be not troubled, 14, one to six, that's pretty appropriate, right? He loves us, so what does he do? He calms us, he loves us, so he says, essentially, Psalm 46, 10, be, be still and, and know that I am God. I, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Don't, don't lose your mind. Don't, don't freak out. Don't end up in a, in a state where you're ineffective, but, but be not troubled. Hope in God. Believe in me. As well, the emphasis on his unity of essence with the Father. He does this because he loves us. He wants us to understand the beauty of the, the triune God. He gives us instruction on the role of the Holy Spirit, chapters 14 and 15 and 16. He gives instruction on the relationship of the vine and the branches. Again, because he loves us, that's the emphasis. And then as well, the emphasis on his love for his people, again, in chapter 15, nine to 17. And then the warning that the world is going to rise up in opposition against them. Somebody prayed in the last hour and it was so appropriate and so fitting. Isn't it amazing when we read, you know, Voice of the Martyrs or these accounts of martyrdom or persecution? What's the crime of the Christian? Well, you know, they strap on C4 and they go down to the city square and they blow everybody up. No, that's not what they do. They, you know, menace society. They promote all kinds of lawlessness and sexual perversion and the murder of babies and the murder. No, that's, that's not them either. Well, you know, they don't pay tax. Yeah, they do. Paul tells them to, according to Romans chapter 13. What's their crime? We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to really hate God to want to hate somebody and hurt them because they believe in him. And this is precisely what the Lord 
does exhort them with. If the world hates the master, they're going to hate the servants. I'm not telling you this because I hate you. I'm telling this because I love you, and you should know this. And then the encouragement ultimately at the end of the discourse that he has overcome the world. He says, I've, I've, I've told you these things so, so that you might have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. Don't you love the truthfulness of our Savior? He doesn't say, well, you know, everything's going to be hunky-dory. You're, you're going to just go unaffected by this hor horrible world. You're, you're going to just live perfectly. You're always going to get the raises. You're always going to get the promotions. Your wife's always going to have a smile. Your children will always be obedient. They'll be the dutiful little ones that just say, yes, mommy, yes, daddy. No, 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 that's not what he says. In this world, you will have tribulation. The master, because he loves us, doesn't lie to us. But he says, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So it's love that is the motivating fact behind his words to these disciples. Look again at verse 1 and notice the emphasis on this. It says, uh, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the objects of his love are his own, not just his own in that upper room, but his own. All those that the Father gives me, John 6, 37, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Turn over to John 17. After the upper room discourse, Jesus, as the high priest, prays. And in 17.9, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then notice in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So back to John 13, verse 1. This is calculated specifically to be an encouragement for the 12 apostles. But it's also for us, having loved his own. What is it behind the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his mission? Certainly, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, covenants to save a people from their sins. Christ is the mediator. Christ is the one that takes on our humanity with all of its essential properties and common infirmities thereof, and he comes to save us. There's love back there, too. I wonder at times if we forget that. God so, what, loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This idea or this caricature of Christianity is, as, as an unloving sort of a system. It couldn't be farther from the truth. God commends his own love toward us, Romans 5, 8. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's love. That is the, 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 the perfection in our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he had loved them, but then it goes on to say that he loved them to the end. And the, his own there, those given him by the Father, they're not morally superior. I don't want anybody here that perhaps isn't a Christian to somehow think, well, to be considered his own. You got to wear suits and go to church twice on Sunday. You got to be familiar with the hymns. You got to have some sort of knowledge of Sunday school. You, 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 you just, just assumes all this stuff. And, and, you know, this is a class of people that sort of satisfy those requirements. And so, so they become his own. No, that, that's not it at all. Ask anybody sitting here that has faith in Jesus. Are you in Jesus because of you? Nope, not even a little bit. I'm in Jesus because of Jesus. Election doesn't find men in Christ, Gil said. 
election puts men in Christ. We're here because God first loved us. The, his ownness is not the morally superior lot. The church-going folk, they've got a confession under their arm, they've got their Bible under their arm, and they're ready. No, no, no. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We are deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We're vile, helpless, guilty. We are at odds with the living and the true God. So his own are not the ones that are somehow morally superior. His own are those whom the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. His own are those who have benefited from the glory of God Most High, who has chosen for himself a great multitude that no man can number. And I would suggest as well that that argues there is hope to be had in Jesus. If sinners are in Christ, that's an encouragement to other sinners to look unto Christ, isn't it? When Paul says this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that right there is good. But Paul ups the ante. Paul wants to make sure that you understand the gravity of the statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul then goes on to say, of whom I am chief. So there is not a sinner on the face of the earth that can say, well, you know, I'm just too wicked to be saved. No, you're so wicked, you must be saved. And it's only by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle, chief of sinners. We hear him and we see him and we read his letters. We forget that road to Damascus. We forget the extrication, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? extradition papers that he has in his hand as he moves to Damascus to arrest believers, men and women, to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be punished, so they could be sentenced up to including death. Saul of Tarsus was a wretch. He was a bad guy. He was not the sort of guy that you'd want to hang out with, and you're certainly not the sort of guy or girl he'd want to hang out with unless he was putting the handcuffs on you and taking you back to the tribunal so that you could uh, get your, your sentence. But what happens? Christ saves the chief of sinners for encouragement to other sinners. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from what? From all sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches of his grace. Not just the little meager amounts of his grace, but the riches of his grace. So the objects of divine love here are not a morally superior class of people, but miserable, guilty sin sinners that God in his free mercy and grace set his affection upon. But as well, consider the love of Jesus as it comes to us in verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think this does reflect at least three things here. When we consider the love of God, it's a different sort of a consideration than the love of man. We love, you probably have somebody sitting next to you or somebody in your life somewhere that, that you love. 
You can say that of a certainty. I, I love this person. I love my children. I love my grandchildren. I love the, the bones of my wife. That's a Liverpool sort of an expression. I love the bones of this person. Expresses just how much you love them. So we have the capacity to love. We can increase in love. We can diminish in love as well. People cross us and we don't love them so much anymore. But you see, it cannot be said of us as it is of God in 1 John 4, 8 and 16 that we are love. We can love. We can grow in love. We have the ability to love. But with God, his perfections are God. All that is in God is God. And so when it says God is love, it doesn't mean he has the capacity to love. It doesn't mean he increases or diminishes in love. God is love. God is righteousness. God is holiness. God is justice. He's not so many parts making up God. God is his attributes. All that is in God is God. So when Jesus says that he had loved them, or when the narrator tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We learn first of the unchanging love of Christ for us. The unchanging love of Christ for us. That's a mind-blowing concept. But brethren, let it blow your minds once in a while because it's glorious. The Lord God Most High is immutable. He is impassable. There is no shadow of turning. There is no variation with thee. The Lord God Most High loves his people in an unchanging way. Now, we ask the question, well, how could that be? I mean, I'm kind of a wretch on Tuesdays. I miss coffee. I got a few bad meetings. And by Tuesday afternoon, I'm not only not loving myself, I quite despise myself. And yet, you're telling me that God's love is unchanging? I'm not telling you that. Moses, the prophets, the apostles, our Lord Jesus, they're telling you that God's love is unchanging. A second thing is that God's love, Christ's love for his own, is constant. That's good news, isn't it? Again, we don't have to worry on Tuesday afternoon, or, you know, is the lightning bolt going to come and get me? It, it might, but that's not an expression of his hatred for you. You might need a lightning bolt to exit you from this, this present evil age and take you into the glory of his kingdom. But the love of Jesus is constant. It's not fluctuating. It's not chaotic. It's not so many vicissitudes in a, in a world of flux. So for whatever issues and challenges and problems and trials that we face in the creaturely realm, we don't have that problem with our great God. We don't have that problem with our blessed Savior. And then I would suggest that the love of Christ is infinite. This kind of flows together. Not a lot of difference in unchangeable and in uh, constant and in infinite. But it is good to think through it. It is good to ponder it. In fact, turn to the book of Ephesians where the apostle wants the church in Ephesus to consider this very thing. He wants them to consider not their love for Jesus, which can be a bit depressing from time to time, but Jesus' love for them. That's a good exercise, brethren. To be a scholar in Christ's school of love is a good endeavor. 
Notice in 3.14, the apostle tells them how he prays for them. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And now he has three specific petitions, three things that he asks of God relative to the people in the church in Ephesus. And the first is verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. I want you to be strong. I mean, brethren, again, we struggle. There's a lack of courage, a lack of fortitude, a lack of those sorts of things. But all things being equal, we ought to pray Paul's prayer with him. Say, fill us such with the Holy Spirit that we're strengthened with all might in the inner man so that we may endeavor to glorify you in this present evil age. And then notice that second petition, focusing upon the love of Jesus, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height, uh, depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Again, brethren, that's not our love for Christ. That doesn't pass knowledge. If we do love him, we should love him. That he does love us is absolutely amazing. It's absolutely glorious. It's wondrous. And that's Paul's point, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. In other words, it's, it's infinite. You can ponder it as it's revealed to you in Scripture. You can stand in awe and amazement as it's revealed to you in Scripture. As you understand the doctrine of justification by faith, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit... But can you get to the point where you have it all tied up in a nifty little package? Well, there's the love of Christ for me. No, it passes knowledge. See, when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not offering just a, a few meager benefits to the weary soul. There is everything in Jesus. Everything that the desperate soul needs is to be found in our Lord Jesus. That's why we say, come to Jesus. You're a sinner, you need Jesus. You need stability and peace in Jesus, come to Jesus. You need this understanding or we, you want this kind of love, come to Jesus. The third petition is quite curious as well, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think the context indicates that what we have there is something of temple. You remember that Shekinah glory came down and filled the temple of God most high? Paul says, I want you to be strong, I want you to know that love, and I want you as the people of God to be filled with all the fullness of God most high. I want the Shekinah glory to obtain when you gather together in your worship services and as you conduct yourself in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But back to our passage, we have a love here that is very specific, it is unchangeable, it is constant, it is infinite, it is glorious, it is wondrous, and it is worthy of us celebrating and praising and rejoicing and delighting. Now notice secondly, according to verse two, the opposition of the devil. The opposition of the devil, he's never far away in terms of the, the, the goings on in this present world. Now verse one, or I'm sorry, verse two says, and supper being ended, or during supper, as the other sort of translations translate, it's tough to know which exactly supper is in view. I thought I was a shoe-in understanding that, and then I read Gill, and I thought, I'm not sure what supper is going on here. But we know it's close to Passover, it's close to the institution of the supper, the Lord's Supper. So I tell you to read Gill and maybe get confused as I am, but, but uh, I don't know that that's good counsel. He connects it to the two days prior to Passover when Jesus has supper at the house of Simon the leper. And at that point, we see that the devil has come to uh, Judas 
in, in terms specifically of uh, pilfering money from the money box. Again, whether that's the case, Poole suggests that there were a couple of different meals on the Passover, and this wasn't the specific Passover meal here, but that was coming. So again, tough to nail it down, but we have the general proximity in terms of Passover. We're there theologically in terms of the hour, and we see specifically here the, the, the machinations of the devil this close to the cross. So notice, with reference to the opposition of the devil, we read, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, the meaning of the phrase is not that he has omnipotence. He's not God, right? The, the devil is not like God. The devil is creature. There's only one creator, one infinite. The devil is creature, creature or finite. So he's not got omnipotent powers, he can't make you do something. So if you ever say, well, the devil made me do it. No, theologically, that's incorrect. He could tempt you to do it, but he didn't make you do it. So I think that's what's in view here in verse two. He's tempting Judas to this particular act of treachery. He's tempting Judas to betray the master for 30 pieces of silver. He's tempting Judas to get in sort of swing this plan and purpose to, to execute the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you read this and as you consider the machinations, that's a good old Puritan word, uh, of the devil, you know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> you know it's the purpose and plan of God that, that Jesus must be betrayed, that Jesus must be delivered up to godless hands, that Jesus must be crucified, and that Jesus must be raised from the dead. So, so the devil here is playing on the, the harder affections of a godless wretch under the sovereign power and control of God Most High. This doesn't mitigate the responsibility of the devil as that arch fiend, and it certainly doesn't mitigate the responsibility of Judas, but it demonstrates the absolute sovereign power of God Most High. Peter does the same thing in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, verse 23, he talks about you nailing, godless hands nailing Jesus Christ to the cross, but it was done so according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. The apostles praying in Acts 4, 28 and 29, they, they praise God because of what he put in the hearts of Pontius Pilate and, and, and Herod to accomplish his purposes. See, brethren, I think we have this delusion that God's like a doctor or a surgeon. Thankfully, he's not. But uh, we can use the analogy as so far as it works. But like, like he has all these, you know, uh, sterilized instruments. That, that's what happens if you've had a surgery, right? You don't see the doctor, you know, wiping it off on his pants or blowing it. I've often joked when you have your first child, they drop their binky and you go and boil it to get all the, the hairs off it and all the spots. By the second, third, fourth child, yeah, you're just rubbing it on your pants or blowing it. Six, seven, eight, you probably don't even do that. Just shove it, hair and you know, blemishes right back in their, in their mouth. So, so we have this idea that God just works with these sterilized instruments. See, the problem is in this world, there's no sterilized instruments. Everything's a mess. So God works with the mess that he has. And as the scripture testifies, he overrules it for his glory and for our good. Joseph saw this. You meant this for evil, but, but God overruled it for good, Genesis 50, 20. 
The same passages in Acts 2 and Acts 4. When we see the horror of the crucifixion, Jesus, according to Hebrews 7.26, is holy, harmless, and undefiled. So whence the cross? Why did they execute him? Because it was the purpose and plan of God. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And that shed blood had to come from the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in order for that to happen, there had to be the machinations at the lower level, overruled, overseen, and ultimately decreed by God Most High for the salvation of his people from their sins. So the devil comes along, he presents this temptation to, the, to, to, to Judas, and we see specifically this is what happens. It's already been announced, chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. Jesus already referred to, to, to Judas as a devil. As well, he makes this res, uh, 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 reference, or he's going to make further explanation in chapter 13 here at verses 18 to 30, but also in chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. So this isn't the first announcement. This isn't the first sort of, wow, this is, this is going to happen. It, it's coming to fruition. It's coming to pass. In fact, look at a parallel in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. It's an interesting situation that we find here. Luke chapter 22, specifically at verses 3 to 6. This is representative of what you find in, in Matthew and in Mark as well, what we call the synoptic gospels. But notice in 22.1 now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him and to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, I know this is going to sound like an argument from silence, and it is, but it seems like a pretty loud argument from silence. Notice in chapter 22, same chapter, verses 31 to 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Again, it's a bit of a different context. It's not as if Judas and Jesus are talking and Jesus says, you're going to betray me, but I prayed for you. There's no mention there of prayer. And again, different, but I think what we're supposed to glean from this is that the people of God have their challenges. The blood-bought children of God do at times some pretty horrible things, but... They've always got the love of the master on their side. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So you see, there's this resolve. There's this announcement that, Peter, you're going to do some things that are unsavory. I've prayed for you, you're going to return to me, and when you return to me, I want you to strengthen the brethren. So he loved them, and he loves them to the end. And that loving to the end includes the cross, to be sure, but it transcends the cross. It's resurrection, it's ascension, it's current session, it's his intercession for his people from the right hand of the Father. It's his advocacy on their behalf, according to 1 John 2. He loves them to the end. He grants the spirit, he grants the graces of faith or of perseverance. He grants us that ability by his grace to enter in finally to his presence. So that love to the end doesn't have a terminus. 
It doesn't have a termination point. That's more calculated for us. There's no end in the divine. There's no beginning and end relative to God Almighty. That's language for us. That's in the manner of men. So when it says he loved them to the end, don't think, well, in 15,000 years, it's going to be all spent up. No, the hymn writer was closer. When we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Eternity is what awaits the people of God and love on behalf of God to them. Back to our text, we've got the, the identity of the betrayer. He's called Judas Iscariot. He is called or identified as a devil in 670 and 71, and he was a thief according to chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. But you know what's a bit scary here? He was an apostle, right? What does that mean? It means that whatever your office or your place in the Christian church, you're not off limits to the attack of the devil. He, he goes after apostles too. Simon, Simon, Satan has, has requested to sift you like wheat. See, just because you might be a pastor or a deacon or a really good guy doesn't mean you're immune from the onslaught of the devil. Now, I don't say that to make you unhappy or sad. I say that so that you'll be on guard. According to Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Thankfully, Christ is our intercessor that prays for us. So the prominence of a particular office doesn't mean you're immune from the assault of the devil. But as well, the prominence of a particular office doesn't argue that you have grace in your heart. So in other words, you're a pastor, you're a deacon, you're a really good guy. That's not ultimately the issue. The ultimate issue is what think ye of Christ? Do you look to him in faith? Do you believe on him? Have you received his righteousness? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Doesn't matter your office if you're a graceless soul. And so Judas stands as a warning beacon on the pages of scripture, wagging his devilish finger at us to be on guard, to be watchful. The devil does roam about, but the, main, uh, the, the safest place for the, the believer to be is believing in Jesus Christ. And then of course, the nature of the betrayal, the father determined it, Acts 2, Jesus Christ willingly underwent, underwent it, the book of the Passion, but Judas is responsible. John Gill says, this was an affair determined by God, known by Christ, and which he foretold to his disciples. Yet all this did not in the least excuse the malice of Satan and the wickedness of Judas. It just does end. Again, there's a lot that could be said here. We're not going to say it, but just suffice to, to know that this does not remove the, the liability for punishment from Judas Iscariot. We see that he goes to his own place, according to Acts 125, the viciousness of his crimes against the majesty of Christ meant he went to his own place. The apostles there are, preach, are praying for his replacement, and they say incidentally that he went to his own place. And that brings us finally to the resolution or commitment of the Savior. Notice in verse 3. So we've got this sort of dark statement in verse 2, right? I mean, the devil's there, Judas is there with the devil having sort of entered him and, you know, applied uh, his wares and gotten him to agree, that, that casts a bit of a shadow over everything. But see, verse 3 is calculated to dissipate that shadow. 
It's calculated to bring us back to reality. Greater is he that is in you than, than he that is in the world. The devil will ply, the devil will engage, the devil will try, but Jesus is always Jesus. He's always got power. He's always got authority. He's always got what we need. So notice in verse three, he highlights the knowledge of his authority, and then he highlights the knowledge of his mission. So verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Kind of a contrast, isn't it? Satan gave Judas a particular enticement and Judas succumbs. You see, that doesn't rock the divine order. It doesn't rock the messianic agenda. Jesus was given all authority by the Father. And we remember from John's gospel, he has the authority to save. He has the authority to condemn. He has the authority, according to John 5, to execute judgment. So Christ, going into this upper room discourse, going into that high priestly prayer, going into Gethsemane, going ultimately to the cross, knows of a truth that God has furnished him for this hour. That is an encouragement. So whatever problems verse 2 may cause for us and cast a shadow on the narrative, Verse three says, but wait a minute, it's Jesus after all. It's Jesus who has all authority. It's Jesus whose father has given him all authority. But it's not only that, Jesus is conscious of his mission. Look at verse three again. Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, that's the authority but then the mission is stipulated at the end of verse three, and that he had come from God and was going to God. We might just say that the hour was the purpose for which the Son of God came. That does not relinquish the importance of the 33 years of absolute perfect obedience to the law of the Father, but it is to suggest that that hour sort of culminates everything in that messianic mission. He came from the Father, why? He came for, from the Father to take on our flesh, to live in perfect obedience to the law, something that you and I could never do. Then he went to the cross in our flesh and was crucified, something that we could do, but it wouldn't atone for our sin. And then he was raised again with that selfsame body. Now, in that, he accomplished everything that we need. We need righteousness because we're unrighteous. Well, that's the glory of the work of Jesus. It's imputed to us or given to us and received by faith alone. But we also need all those sins washed, don't we? We need to be cleansed. Well, that comes through his precious blood and the death on the cross. We need the sort of final seal that this is in fact the real deal. Well, the resurrection from the dead. In fact, the apostle summarizes gospel truth in 4, uh, Romans 4.25 by saying that Christ was delivered up because of our offenses and he was raised for our justification. So Christ here introducing the upper room or rather John introducing it to us tells us the problem in terms of the devil and his opposition that gives us the remedy in the authority and in the mission of the Son of God. 
Two themes that we see in the prologue. Two themes that we see constantly in the book of the signs. What does Christ continually invoke when he's dealing with the religious leaders and their opposition? His origin from the Father vis-a-vis -vis his identity and his authority. In other words, he was a man with a mission and he was resolved and purposed to fulfill it. That's the vantage point in which he prepares the disciples now to teach them specific things such that they'll then go out knowing that great love of Christ, knowing the benefits of his life and death and resurrection, knowing what he has received from the Father, knowing that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's what activated the power of the early church when they went and did what they were called to do. And I would bring this to a conclusion by highlighting that reality. It wasn't just the first century church that needed good doctrinal theology concerning who God is. It was them. They did need it. They needed to understand that when they're in Acts 17 and they're being accused of preaching another king, Jesus, they're not going to be shaken by that. They're not going to be, well, well no, we, we, we submit to the civil state. No, we do preach another king, Jesus, because he is the one sent by the Father, clothed with authority, with a specific mission, and he has called us now to go and to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. Those first century apostles needed it. These 21st century disciples today need it. What's going to move the church to get outside of our comfort zone, to go do the task of, 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 of disciple making, of evangelism, of missions? Is it self-help? Is it therapy? Is it guilt manipulation? Is it pastors who scold you? Well, you better share the gospel with five souls this week or I'm going to let you have it on Sunday. Brethren, scolding is, you know, mothers do that with their children and rightfully so. Kids need to be scolded, but the people of God need God. They need the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They need in this divine and infinite being, there are three persons or subsistences, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each having the divine essence, each having that, that blessed power and glory and will. And then there's those three persons by which we understand God even more fully. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten by the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's that kind of stuff that moves the church off the couch to go proclaim His glory, to go proclaim His excellencies and His power. We're not preaching some feeble, weak little God. We are preaching the Most High from everlasting to everlasting. We are preaching blood atonement through the second person of the triune God. He took on our humanity so he could suffer in our place. Brethren, it's that kind of stuff that moves the church to function in the capacity that God has purposed. It's not the self-help. It's not the encounter group. It's not the birdbath theology that, 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 that is that uh, deep or shallow. We need the truth as it is in Jesus to empower us by the Spirit to go do what we're supposed to do. This concept, well, you know, doctrine just divides. Let's just love Jesus. What Jesus are you loving without doctrine? The Jesus after your own fashioning? The Jesus that looks like you? The Jesus that functions like you? I'm glad it's not that way, but we have the Jesus revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation. That's the Jesus and the doctrinal understanding of that Jesus, along with Father and Son, the true and living God who exists eternally in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need that. 
to get up, to go, and to make disciples of all the nations. But not just disciple-making and outside, you know, out there, but inside, corporate worship. What gets you out of bed on a Sunday morning? Oh, I can't wait to see so-and-so. I'm not saying that's bad. I'd hate it if you said, oh, I can't stand the thought I'm going to see so-and-so today. That wouldn't be happy. But, but really, what was it that David was commenting on when he says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And look at the leadership of David there. I was glad when they said to me. He kinged, theologized, and lived and worshiped in such a way that it was a contagion to others. So that they on Lord's Day morning would come and say, David, it's time to go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Again, what causes us to move into corporate worship, but the object of that worship, the triune God. We have, we have an audience with God most high. The book of Revelation, chapter one, where do we find Jesus Christ? He's in the midst of the lampstands, brethren. Well, it just doesn't feel like that. Well, you better believe it because that's what scripture tells us. Paul's petition that you be filled with all the fullness of God. He's using temple tabernacle language. When Solomon constructed the temple, when they offered up sacrifice, that Shekinah glory of God filled the temple. That's not unique to the old covenant. We have it in the new covenant. When all the fullness of God comes down and is with his people. So it's this kind of theology that motivates and moves the church to function as she is supposed to. And then the final thought when we close is, please don't miss what the passage says about Jesus. He loves. He loves to the end. And he has the authority. And he's engaged the mission to express, to demonstrate, and to showcase that love. You don't have to ask the question, well, well, how does Jesus show that he loves? Just read from this point on. Just read as he goes into Gethsemane. Just read as those godless hands are placed upon him, taking him before the Sanhedrin, then taking him before Pontius Pilate. Pilate himself knows this man is not guilty. This is because of the envy of the mob. But he nevertheless capitulates to that mob. Why? So that Jesus could fulfill the mission and save his people from their sins. So think about that, enjoy that, and may it indeed animate us in our lives, not just outwardly in terms of evangelism and missions, but internally, let us come in the public worship of God to God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this brief section, this introduction to the Upper Room Discourse and such a, a wonderful statement concerning the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we pray that this message would be preached throughout the earth, and we pray that many would come out of darkness into marvelous light by your power and for your glory. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll sing the, the doxology in praise to our God. 568.